0: Hello and welcome to Talon and Titan, a podcast for current and future leaders in the advertising, digital, and design spaces. Talent and Titan is produced by Creative Niche, an innovative staffing, recruitment, and executive search firm in lovely downtown Toronto. You can find Creative Niche on all social medias at Creative Niche or at their website, creativeniche.com. I am your host, Christian Gilbert. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're doing well. On today's show, we've got Matt DePala speaking with Gassia Malgian. Matt is the head of innovation and a partner at Sidley, a creative services firm with offices in Toronto, Montreal, New York, Paris, and Los Angeles. During their conversation, they discuss everything from Matt's start at Western University to his current role and lots in between, like, for example, what innovation looks like, the perks of being a troublemaker, his experiences with Toronto's fringe festival, Second City and much more. All that next on Talent and Type.
1: many moons ago at Western University and uh, didn't want to go to law school I had thrown a bunch of events in university and, and through you know jobs as a, as a teenager so I like, I felt like I could do event planning for a living so to legitimize that I went back to Humber College and went to the PR program to really kind of get a, an internship and a weigh-in for uh, events so I did the PR program and before I even finished the, the post-grad started working at a small agency called Harbinger, which is still around today. Yeah, you know, typical PR job of event planning, media relations, all that fun stuff back in the uh, mid-90s. And then, of course, the Internet was just starting to come up as a, as a thing, which really caught my eye. And so you know, I couldn't shift the uh, PR agency into thinking that the Internet was going to be a thing. So I actually uh, left and went to a small digital shop as they were just starting to pop up back then called Devon. Got very early in, in 1998, to work on a lot of the first e-commerce. I built Mac Cosmetics' first e-commerce site. Worked with CIBC to try and move people from telephone banking to online banking, You know, as scary as that sounds.
2: <laughs> That's exciting.
1: You know, as much as I liked the e-business side of things, marketing was something I, I knew I enjoyed, and I knew I wanted to continue to round out my skills. So I thought I'd go to a big agency at that point to really go to learn So I went To Leo Burnett, and uh, learned a lot there. And then Leo Burnett was going through—you know—it was it, this was right around the dot-com crash, and Leo Burnett's digital department—you know—went through several rounds of uh, layoffs, and you know, it did some great work, but there wasn't a lot like. It was more in survival mode than growth mode, so I got to a point where I, you know, I survived all the, the layoffs, but there wasn't a lot of opportunity. It didn't seem to be a vision for that, and I uh, ended up meeting someone who was re-kicking off Tribal in Toronto. So I started as, you know, employee number one at Tribal, and then spent the next five years uh, growing that up to about twenty-five people, and you know, obviously integrating with DDB, doing a lot of uh, global work as well as Canadian work, kind of bringing digital up to the forefront of the agency, and then was pitching against Andrew Bailey at Proximity all the time. And then, uh, you know, I would win, he would win. One. And then we had breakfast one morning and started talking about what it would look like if we actually combined efforts. <laughs> and so uh, he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I did that for five years and then was honestly tired of the competition that the BBDO Proximity I was more competitor than partner. I was about to go start my own thing and I ended up talking to the Sid Lee folks and uh, talked to Vito over here and I'm like, if you were me, why wouldn't you start your own thing? And he's like, well, why wouldn't you just start your own thing and use the silly name so people call you back and just come and build the thing that you want to build? <laughs> and I'm like, I can't argue with that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well sold, Vito Piazza, well sold.
2: <laughs> so, so he convinced you and I think head of innovation is the title that you received.
1: They wanted someone to come in and help build that side of the business. And, and, you know, I said to him, I go, you can't, you can't put a digital person in like you're you're already 15 years too late for that conversation. I go let's let's talk about forward thinking of what it should be in the future not what it should have been when you opened. So that's why we threw the word innovation and as over time we just kind of dropped digital because everything we do has digital as part of it.
2: What does innovation look like in an organization like Sidley? What what would that mandate involve?
1: It's intentionally ambiguous. From my perspective, I look at it as one Sid Lee needs to evolve. And so there's an operational side of it. Okay, so what skill sets do we need? Uh, What training do we need for the current teams? What areas are our clients looking? You know, where's the white space that our clients don't have anybody servicing and that they're asking for versus what everyone else does? And then how do we build around that? You got to be where the market is, not where you want it to be. We are doing work in virtual reality. We're doing work in augmented reality. We're doing a lot of work in social. Still, we're doing a lot of work using data in new ways, and we're integrating all of that into how we work. We're not, and it's not about building silos.
2: Who does your team consist of?
1: Uh, me. I say that facetiously only because um, we've intentionally not built a separate innovation team. So I work closely with our heads of strategy or heads of creative or head of account our heads of account our heads and our head of production and make sure that as we are bringing new skill sets into the agency and, and, and offering new services to our clients. We're building those into one of those departments versus having a separate innovation department.
2: In terms of fostering that type of culture, a culture of innovation across the organization, outside of your mandate and the specific projects that you work on, how is one able to do that from a leadership perspective?
1: I mean, it it does help obviously having buy-in from the leadership. I think that's, I mean, if I didn't have Vito's buy-in from even the interview process, then I would have been dead in the water in the first three months. And so you have having a leadership that's passionate about it and knowing that the business needs to change is the first step. I think from that, you can't make wholesale change across an organization. I can't just come in and like, okay, Sidley, we're going to be innovative now. Everyone hop on board. Um, It does absolutely start from the projects you work on and from a grassroots level. And it is about finding the people and the teams that are curious and want to try something new. And I've got, you know, I've got a mix of, client projects, which, you know, stuff we've sold in and we're you know, clients who've come to us for it. And I've got a bunch of prototype, skunk projects, like small projects, like, okay guys, we need to figure out, we need to have a point of view on VR. And the only way to have a point of view view on VR is not actually just reading what everyone else is reading. Let's go make something. And I'll grab and I'll grab a small team and we'll make something and we'll present it back in So I think the the culture of Sidley being very entrepreneurial and hiring very curious people who like to make things lends itself to be able to do that. Not every organization can pull that off. Not everyone gets involved. I, I mean, I've i certainly got my my key people that I, that I go to internally to go make things when we know we need to go make them.
2: One of the things that you talked about in that, and then also that I've, I've read about you, you are a self-described outlier and innovative and a troublemaker. Are these qualities that you look for in others and new hires?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the on the outlier and troublemaker stuff, I think... People who require a lot of process or require a lot of permission and have to be told what to do wouldn't survive in Sidley's culture. Sydney's not like. Yes, there, there are guardrails and there are guidelines to ensure things get done, but I think the people who succeed here, and the people who certainly succeed with me are the ones who's like, I have this idea, let's figure out how to make it. I've never done it before, but I want to figure it out. And I think that always thinking, always like, hey, wouldn't it be, you know, the, wouldn't it be cool if okay, let's figure it out. So when I look at people like that, I, mean, I look at people who aren't precious about ownership of their ideas. They aren't, you know, they, they are collaborative by nature. They, they are curious. They are looking for inspiration and checking out things and aware of what's going on and, and are just I think hyper aware of the, the world around them, not just from reading about it on blogs, but actually participating in it.
2: What's something that you've learned or experienced that has significantly contributed to your success in the industry that people might be surprised to hear?
1: Improv lessons with Second City. Oh. Would be, would be <laughs> a first one. During those days of PR and everything else, early days, I, um, I was also taking some film writing and some screenwriting, and uh, I entered into the Toronto Fringe Festival. Uh, I'm not, not sure how you're familiar with the Fringe Festival, but it's a lottery-based system, so anyone can enter. And they basically draw a number and you're in. So I entered without anything in January, got in and then had to have a play ready by July.
2: That's ambitious.
1: Never written one. So I ended up financing it, producing it, writing it and directing it myself with help of my sister who was an actress. And we pulled that off. And I think coming out of that, you know, got me into theater and led me into taking some improv classes. You know, I took the improv classes more because I was had a genuine curiosity about theater from that experience. But the more I... The more classes I took, the more I learned how to apply to everyday life and those, you know, the yes ands, the how might we's, the wouldn't it be cool if, like those types of things and learning how to actually brainstorm with people, learning how to identify insights in a new way, learning how to collaborate in a different way um, with a group versus, again, a style of way of thinking. As I use it every day. The stuff I learned in in those classes, I use every day.
2: So those... Skills that you acquire from those improv lessons um, really lend well to your communication style one-on-one versus in a team setting. What are some gaps that you see? Um, Let's take strategists or designers, for example, people that you work with across the teams. Um, What would you say from a soft skills perspective is something that you notice?
1: I think the biggest challenge that creative teams have is articulating the idea. They come up with cool stuff. Uh, you know, if, if they get a good brief, they can come up with good ideas, but I think their ability to articulate the idea in an easily digestible way when they're, when they're presenting it or trying to convince someone to buy it uh, is one thing I think you always see in a creative team is always hopefully one of the two, either the writer or art director, is a more confident presenter. If not, they're, they're dead in the water and one of them needs to figure that out. But I think that I've seen a lot of great ideas die on the table because they weren't presented properly. And I think if there's anything a creative team does once they've kind of got their hard skills sorted out is take some storytelling, take some presentation classes and learn how to present their work and learn how to adjust their approach based on the room. I think and that, and that comes with experience and it comes with time and it comes with the, the right creative director to help pull that out of people. On the strategy side, I think that, you know, the cliche often is they're the smartest person in the room and no one else gets it. And I think that's where sometimes strategists, I think when, when I see them fall they may have they may have a really good advertising idea based in the community but they don't necessarily understand the client's business and i think you know a good strategist goes deeper than just consumer insights and understands the client's business has client empathy understands their world understands how to connect the dots between what the business problem is and what the communication problem is and, and bring that full circle
2: i wanted to end off um, just talking a little bit about a personal favorite of mine you were part of the m&m find red campaign which obviously you and your team got a lot of positive press and a lot of accolades for i wanted to get a little bit of insight from you how did that idea come about what were some of the biggest contributors to that campaign's success
1: that's you know, that's a really good one to ask about because uh, it's funny when I use that even still today when I'm talking to creatives about how to fight for an idea. So I think at the time I was at BBDO Proximity and I think BBDO Proximity back then had and still continues today has a great relationship with the Mars clients. Having having that trust and having that relationship is is certainly the foundation for any of this. But I think what was what was interesting about that one is there was there wasn't a brief. It wasn't something the client asked us to do. What what happened was one of our creative directors at the time you know had this idea saying okay you know Google's coming to town to film Street View in Toronto I don't know what I want to do with that yet but I want to try and see if I can sneak an and m's character into the footage and so that, that's what was like what what if we did this how might we kind of crack that and I think and so we're like okay so we we, we asked the client saying hey can we borrow the m's cost the the costumes you use for events want to try and see if we can create something so because what Google does is, you know, it would tweet when it was first coming, you know, people would tweet, people would talk about where they saw the, the street view truck and camera. So you could try and predict on where to be. So we, we ran around the city those couple days and, and managed to try and get into as many of the shots as we could. And so once the, the street view was released, we went and you know, we kind of looked up all the intersections where we tried to get in and we found there were three different ones where we actually hacked into Google Street View and, and, and we were in there. So from that point, so we've got this thing. What do we do with it? So then we went back to the clients. OK, we're part of Google Street View. We think we can have a fun contest and a bit of a scavenger hunt to try and get people to find where we are. And, I think, and it just started with that. And I think, you know, there, there was... A million ways that project almost died. I mean, it it almost died because the, well, there was no budget. It almost died because of privacy concerns, both from the client standpoint and from Google standpoint. It went, all, it went all the way to like Google headquarters. Google almost shut it down a couple of times. The client was getting nervous. Their legal was getting nervous, and so we you know we kept trying to find ways to keep it alive, and we and we fought for it every step of the way. And I think yeah, you know, we had a pretty brave client. It was like okay. I trusted and and we worked really closely with the legal to make sure everyone felt comfortable with it. Um and then we went live with it. I think that and that's you know I think and to me I think the the tenacity of the the team and also the willingness of everyone to try and find solutions to all the concerns versus just trying to force an idea through. I think everyone was very empathetic saying, yeah, I get it. I, I don't want people freaking out because uh, privacy rules because th- this was like, it was all still new at that point when google was sending those trucks around they were facing all sorts of big uh privacy concerns in, in the news as well so it was uh yeah it was, it was a fun exercise i think and it turned out really well i mean we got got a lot of press for it yeah and yeah, you know we won a few ken lions which is always fun and i think uh you know the, you know we got to hack google which is always fun too so anytime you can hack one of the big platform platforms and do something that hasn't been done before is always uh a nice project.
2: Thank you so much for all of this information, for your insights. Such a pleasure to chat with you. I really hope that I get an opportunity to um, meet with you in person.
1: Would love that. That'd be great.
0: Well, that concludes Gassia's chat with Matt. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you should subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or at talentandtitan.simplecast.fm. Also, you can follow us on all social medias at Talent and Titan. There, you can also check out our sponsors at Creative Niche or at creativeniche.com. If you want to keep up with Matt, check him out on Twitter at Matt depala or at Sidley. I'm your host, Christian Gilbert. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Matt for taking the time to chat with us. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out as we'd love to hear from you. Take care until next time.